when we look at that, when you drive along, you look at that golf course, it's not just the golf course you see. You see layers upon layers of a particular kind of imposition that has been placed on top of a, a sacred territory. And this is all part of our history. That's Tarek Jenkins, High Commissioner of the Koringaikona Traditional Khoikhoi Council. Tarek is talking about the piece of land currently taken up by the River Club in Observatory in Cape Town. Tarek is part of a group objecting to the redevelopment of the River Club land currently. They say it's bad enough that there's a golf course on it already, because this site is of sacred significance to South Africa's First Nations people. What's most important about this area is that it is the site of the first colonial clash that took place on the 1st of March 1510 between the Portuguese Viceroy Dalmeida, Francisco Dalmeida, who was also the first Viceroy to colony of India. On the 1st of March 1510, a battle ensued within this precinct where the Gorinaiko had defeated Dalmeida and approximately 87 of his men. That was a landmark victory for the first indigenous people of this country and has been sort of documented as such a moment that influenced very deeply the trajectory in terms of our future as a country. We probably would be speaking in Portuguese in this podcast if it wasn't for that battle. So when Tarek drives past the golf course at the River Club, he gets pretty angry that golf is what this site is used for. When someone can take a small ball and feel that it is allowed to be hit around on sacred terrain, especially in the context of our country that is still reeling from apartheid spatial justice, there is a particular kind of historical arrogance and temerity that is allowed to persist in allowing a few individuals this form of spatial luxury. Spatial luxury. That's a term that has stuck with me since we spoke to Tarek, because the game of golf really does require the ultimate form of spatial luxury. And yet you as a taxpayer are subsidizing golf courses in ways you probably don't even realize. Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger, the Daily Maverick podcast where we bring you the stories behind the story. I'm Rebecca Davis. On average, an 18-hole golf course takes up between 50 and 60 hectares of land. That's about 50 rugby fields. Or if you prefer to visualize things without sporting metaphors, think of it this way. Over 2,700 double-decker buses could be parked next to each other on that land with no gaps in between. There are 10 golf courses and driving ranges located on public land within the municipal boundaries of the city of Cape Town. Not all of these are 18 holers, but still, that's a lot of land. And in a country where the land debate has been heating up slowly but surely with every passing year, it was only a matter of time before someone took a look at all that lovely, lovely land and started to wonder whether it could be put to better use. I'm Mandisa Shandu, and I am the director of Nifunuwa's 
Ndifuna Ukwazi is a legal advocacy group based in Cape Town. And in 2019, it launched a campaign calling on local government to use some of the extensive tracts of land it owns to build low-cost housing on. Nifunuwazi's campaign to redistribute land, particularly municipally owned land, those parcels of land being golf courses, bowling greens, and even in some instances, parking lots, which are underutilized and could really go a long way in advancing urban land justice and the need to advance urban land justice through the use of municipal land, which we've argued and continue to argue cannot be used in the same way going forward. It's a way that was really informed in some instances by colonial as well as quite era planning decisions in terms of land use decisions for recreational purposes, which, as we know, excluded intentionally, violently black people from accessing parts of the city. As you heard Mandisa say there, Nifuna Kwasi's campaign to get the city of Cape Town to redistribute land wasn't based only on golf courses. But the targeting of golf courses was the element that probably received the most public attention. The first, I guess, big public campaign on this was our call to stop the lease renewal of the Rondebosch Golf Course. The Rondebosch Golf Club. 450,000 square meters of public land. Described on its website, as situated only 10 minutes from Cape Town city centre, with magnificent views of Devil's Peak and Table Mountain. But here's the thing about Rondebosch Golf Club, which was revealed by Ndipuna Okwazi when it rolled out its land redistribution campaign. Because the land the club sits on is publicly owned, the club pays a rental to the municipality annually. That amount? 920 rand a year. This, while an annual membership of the golf club, costs 17,000 rand per person per year. And at the time when the Ndifunao Kwasi campaign kicked off, that 920 rand a year lease was about to be extended for another 10 years. Ndifunao Kwasi argued that this meant the city of Cape Town and its taxpayers were essentially subsidizing people playing golf and doing so while the city claimed there was no suitable land close to the centre of town on which to build affordable housing. Local authorities responded that the Rondebosch Golf Club land was unsuitable for housing because it falls within a floodplain. The activists said actually only a third of it falls within the floodplain, which would still leave room to build about 2,400 housing units. Officials also said we need that golf course, as a safe gathering place for the community, and it brings in tourism revenue. The activists pointed out, there's another golf course literally across the road from the Rondebosch one, the King David Mowbray Golf Club. So you have these two huge parcels of land being used for the same purpose being golf, which is highly exclusive sport. And we're basically saying, you know, this this is not something that we think can be justified. Mandisa says another argument they heard? Golf is needed because black golfing champions are needed. And that's something that's really, I think, dislocated from the context that Cape Town is in, in fact, South Africa is in, of a deepening inequality and what land means and what land ought to be used for. 
The specific issue of whether the Rondebosch Golf Club lease should be renewed for another 10 years, and if so, at what cost, is still being tussled over. But when I heard about that 920 rand a year lease, I couldn't get it out of my head. And it got me wondering, how many other golf courses in South Africa are benefiting from these kinds of ridiculously favorable leases? When you start looking into the leases entered into between South African golf clubs and local municipalities, the first thing you realize is that this information is seriously hard to find. In Parliament in 2018, an EFF MP asked the Minister of Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs, Kochta, to supply the number of municipalities leasing land to golf courses and to provide the details of the relevant leases. Kochta replied that the information is not readily available in the department and that to get it together, they would have to gather it from all nine provinces. I followed up last year to ask if that information was available yet. It wasn't. We tried again while making this podcast. Still no go. But after many hours of trawling online records, here are a few details we did find. And what they show is that this phenomenon of golf clubs paying insanely cheap rent for vast tracts of land is the case all over the country. The Stellenbosch Golf Course, a monster at 70.4 hectares, was until 2011 paying rent of 1,000 rand a year. After a new land valuation, the annual rent rose to 135,000 rand per year. Leopard Creek Golf Estate in Pumalanga was up until recently paying rates of only 35,000 rand a year for the entire property, which includes 271 palatial homes alongside a golf course, when in market-related terms, it should have been paying 9.8 million rand annually. Nelspreit Golf Club in Mpumalanga was found in 2018 to be paying 10 rand rental per month on a lease valid for 99 years. After a valuation in 2018, the local municipality determined that the club should be paying at least 18,000 rand per month in rent. The club refused to pay, arguing it could only afford to pay 500 rand per month for the next 10 years. And Port Elizabeth Golf Club in 2017 was reported to be paying 20 rand per year in land rental fees from the municipality. Their lease only expires in 2038. The obvious question is, how did South Africa get into this situation? Why would municipalities sign these bizarre deals, effectively giving away some of their most valuable land for decades and decades into the future? I asked Mandisa from Ndifunao Kwasi what her interpretation was of how this came about. They definitely do have their historic origin in various things. The golf courses in particular, some of which, as I mentioned earlier, have their origin in, in colonial era planning. Mandisa says that in some cases, it's unclear whether written records even exist of these historic leases. But it's also noticeable that from what I could find, a suspicious number of these leases appear to have been nailed down around the early to mid-1990s as South Africa was going through the transition to democracy. The public protector, Busisiwe Mkwebane, actually brought this up in 2017, saying that her office's investigations had found that in certain cases, just before the ANC took power, former municipal officers had locked golf course land into 99-year leaseholds to prevent the land being used for housing and so forth. This tallies with what I found. 
The Durban Country Club, for instance, renegotiated its lease in 1992. It runs to 2052. Yet still, why would the democratic government put up with this? Well, one cynical answer has to do with the profile of most people who play golf. Here's American comedian George Carlin back in 1992. I've got just the place for low-cost housing. I have solved this problem. I know where we can build housing for the homeless. Golf courses. Perfect. Golf courses. Just what we need. Just what we need. Plenty of good land in nice neighborhoods. Land that is currently being wasted on a meaningless, mindless activity engaged in, engaged in primarily by white, well-to-do male businessmen who use the game to get together to make deals to carve this country up a little finer among themselves. I am getting tired. What George Carlin is unsubtly getting at there is that people who play golf tend to be rich and powerful. Not all of them, we should stress. But a report by a bank in 2018 found that golf is still the most popular pastime for South Africa's super-rich, pipping, cycling and art collecting. There's also an unbreakable correlation between playing golf and being a politician. In South Africa, we have a parliamentary golf day and a presidential golf day. When US President Donald Trump and South African President Cyril Ramaphosa sat next to each other at lunch at the UN in September 2017, journalists were frantic to know what the two discussed. Ramaphosa said they spoke about golf courses and South African golfing great Gary Player. In other words, just because the race of the officials in power in South Africa has changed, doesn't necessarily mean they'll do everything possible to make it harder for golf courses to operate. Because maybe they want to play golf too. It's what you do, after all, when you have money and status. It may seem like we're coming down pretty hard on golf courses in this episode. Actually, we've barely scratched the surface. In the run-up to day zero, the point in 2018 when Cape Town was told it was going to run out of water, the use of water by golf courses suddenly swung into the spotlight. Information released by Rand Water estimates the amount of water needed by the average South African golf course to be about 36 million litres a month, enough to ensure a basic water supply to 6,000 households in an increasingly water-stressed country. Last year, when I started looking into this topic, I asked Dr. Kirsty Carden of UCT's Future Water Institute about this issue of golf courses and water consumption. She said, quote, My own view on golf courses is that it's going to become increasingly difficult to defend the practice of using large volumes of water as water scarcity increases, as it's likely to do in the long term in South Africa. There may well be geographical contexts where it's appropriate and feasible to have golf courses. But the use of water to keep tracts of land green for this purpose only should definitely not be prioritized over other societal water needs, such as food production and ensuring sustainable livelihoods." Unquote. And it's not just that golf courses guzzle so much water. It's also that they use a bunch of toxic pollutants to keep their greens looking so green. A 2005 environmental impact report commissioned by the Western Cape government 
found that the pesticides used on golf courses include herbicides, fungicides, growth regulators, defoliants, desiccants, and insecticides, and that these can easily spread into nearby groundwater, dams, or river systems. I'd reached a point where I was struggling to think of almost any arguments in favor of golf, other than that some people derive pleasure from playing it, and that golf courses provide nice green spaces to look at while you drive by them in the middle of the city. But here's the thing. I have to admit to my own hypocrisy. I don't like golf or play golf or watch golf, so I can discuss the demise of golf with satisfaction. But you know what I do like is tennis, which is almost as elitist a sport as golf, and it might take up less space, but if someone said we should redistribute all the land that tennis courts are on, I might find it hard to argue against that, but I definitely feel unhappy. In the interest of fairness, I needed help making a case for golf. So I called up the CEO of Golf RSA, Grant Hepburn. Golf RSA is the kind of governing body for golf in South Africa. Grant, unsurprisingly, is a defender of golf. But rather more surprisingly, his argument is economic. What people should try and understand, hopefully, about golf is, yes, it's a sport on one hand, but at the same time, it plays a huge role in our economy. So, you know, people will be surprised to learn that golf's a 49 billion rand industry on a yearly basis. And, you know, 330 million of that comes through golf tourism. So golf tourism is a huge factor in generating income for our country. And if you look at, you know, well, not only Cape Town, but places around the country, our golf courses are held in very favorable esteem around the world. People flock to our shores to play our golf courses as part of, you know, their holiday. Um, And what's also important to understand is that golf courses alone, forget about the rest of the industry, but golf courses alone employ probably 40,000 people around the country in about Probably 80% of those people are from disadvantaged backgrounds. If you think about, you know, caddies, waiters, maintenance workers, landscapers, laborers, mechanics, greenkeepers, security guards. I mean, there's a, the list goes on and on. So it's an industry that provides a huge amount of employment. And if you extrapolate that to the effect that golf courses has in terms of employment, when you talk about golf estates, when you talk about retail shops, obviously I've just mentioned tourism. So It plays a huge role in the economy of South Africa. We feel that it's an important sport in our landscape. After I'd spoken to Grant, I told Mandisa from Ndifuna Ukwazi what he'd said, that golf actually does make a contribution to our economy from the perspective of tourism and jobs, and that its absence might be sorely felt. Mandisa said, hold on, we're not saying down with golf per se. We're just suggesting that maybe we could find other areas for golf courses. I don't think there's ever been a point in our campaign where we've said, you know, it must be the end of the sport. But I think what it calls us to do is to really confront who does and who doesn't get to have space in the city for a primary need being a human right versus an activity, a luxury sport. And if you do think about the kinds of people who are able to pay the kinds of subscriptions to access golf membership for a year are the kinds of people who most certainly probably could travel a little bit out of the city to play. And so if we thinking about accessing land for advancing urban land justice, the spatial component plays a big role, particularly in Cape Town's context, where the city of Cape Town, central Cape Town, far less dense, 
far less diverse than it was 50 years ago and that's of course is informed by the inability to do something about the forced removals of district 6 and other pockets of land across the city So the idea that people had been pushed out violently and that land is still used for exclusive purposes is something that's a huge mismatch and doesn't contribute to advancing land justice. And so our call for using golf courses really requires a reimagination and a reorientation of accessing land first for primary and socioeconomic needs and seeing how to balance that in a way that is far more just. And if it is that passes of land ought to be you know unlocked elsewhere for golfing activities in a way that won't further spatial inequality then that's something that I think that the city should consider together with these golf clubs and I think that it would be a meaningful contribution from their side in this project of really moving forward as a society where land is essential to healing is central to accessing so many things and I think really the dignity of the city If you were already of the opinion that golf is a good walk spoiled, you probably don't need much more convincing that we need to take a serious look at the golf courses in our urban environment and ask whether their protected status can be justified. But even if you're a golfer, maybe now's a good time to ask, what's the true cost of this pastime in South Africa in 2020? Don't Shoot the Messenger is a podcast brought to you by The Daily Maverick. This episode was produced by Haji Mohamed Dauji with sound engineering, editing and support by Bernard Kotzer, Tevia Turok-Shapiro and Catherine Kotzer. You can listen to Don't Shoot the Messenger on The Daily Maverick's website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. For more, subscribe to The Daily Maverick's newsletters and follow us on Twitter and Instagram.